0: Okay, so we are going to, the very first thing we're going to do tonight um, is, one, I'm going to introduce myself. How many of y'all were not here last month? Okay, last month. So, okay, a handful of you. Uh, by way of introduction, my name's Nathan Wagnon. I'm one of the uh, uh, teachers of this class. The other one is Nyka Spalding back here. Um, and we're both serving the equipping team here at Watermark, and we're going to kind of be leading you through this class. Um, so, last time we talked about kind of an introduction to theology, and then tonight we're going to focus on uh, bibliology, which is uh, a, the doctrine about Scripture. What do we believe about Scripture? Uh, what is it? Why is it useful? Etc. Don't know why that's happening. It was, it was me, but Peter Bible's back there. Matt Armstrong is so I'm confident. <clears throat> um, so. The first probably 10 minutes, what I want you to do for those of you who did read the article, thank you, and uh, we're going to give you about 10 minutes for you to talk among your tables um, about that article, kind of what were the major takeaways uh, that you took, what were uh, things that were new for you, what were things that were not new, what were some things that you agreed with, disagreed with, that sort of thing, and then here in about 10 minutes I'll come back up and walk us through that article together. Um, if you don't have a copy, Sean uh, is going to come back down and kind of pass those out. But talk amongst your table, uh, discuss amongst yourselves. Y'all remember that? Uh, Saturday, yeah, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> All right, see you in about ten minutes. Hey, uh, also, I know we encouraged you guys to, uh, uh, if if you aren't already doing so, to be memorizing scripture as we go. So we we suggested the two for this week is Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, um, and or 2 Timothy, or uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So we'll give you a chance at the end of our time to, uh, to kind of quote that to one another, just to hold one another accountable. Um, I, I would highly encourage you to do that. If, if scripture memory is not a part of your kind of, uh, I guess, consistent discipline to, to uh, keep in the word and to hide the word in your heart, then, I mean, it, hopefully this can be a context that you can cultivate and grow that, all right? Um, all <clears> right. <throat> Okay, so Dan Wallace's article. How many of you have ever ever heard uh, Dr. Daniel B. Wallace talk? Yeah, probably quite a few of you. He's been around here um, a handful of times and uh, has definitely heavily influenced myself and Nica. We both worked for him. Um, And uh, so some of you also might have have read this article and also read Grudem, (laughs) right, and kind of been like, hey, um, sometimes these guys are saying the same same thing, sometimes they're not. And so that's, that's one of the uh, ways that we want to create an environment here to be able to talk about ideas in such a way that, that with a basically talk about ideas with a critical eye. Okay. We're not, we're not going to spoon feed you. We're not going to push this down your throat. You're, you're not children. We're not going to treat, treat you like that. Okay. So um, there is, this is going to be an environment where ideas can be challenged and, you know, Hey, all right, what does it say? Let's look at this. And, and, uh, and everybody is obviously free to totally disagree with anything, um, as long as you're able to support your position, okay? So that's, that's a, kind of a, a, just a note before we start talking about this. Okay, so just a few, because I want to hear a couple of things from you. If you're like dying to, if your table came up with something that was like, man, this was amazing, and you want to share that, um, anybody, I'll give you a few minutes to kind of uh, bounce ideas off of me up here before we start diving into the actual article. Anything? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read the first paragraph. We'll talk about a few things, and I'll read the last paragraph <clears throat> of this article. This article is extremely important, okay? And, and you'll see why as we go, th- go through it, if you haven't already grasped the concept Um, But he says that he opens the, the article by saying the center of all theology of the entirety of the Christian faith is Christ himself. The Christ event, in particular, his death and resurrection is the center of time. Everything before it leads up to it. Everything after it is shaped by it. If Christ were not God in the flesh, he would not have been raised from the dead. And if he were not raised from the dead, none of us would have any hope. My theology grows out from Christ, is based on Christ and focuses on Christ. Okay. And then he goes on from there and saying, Hey, I, I used to think people would give a hearty, hardly amen to this. Right. Um, and then, and then actually shows why, uh, in his experience and i definitely in my experience, that's not always the case. Um, that most, um, not most, a good chunk of evangelicalism, um, especially in our tradition in kind of the Bible church type tradition. Um, and among uh, the reform tradition, a lot of times begins with, uh, bibliology. And in other words, they're, they're beginning with the assumption that the Bible is inerrant and then they're moving from there and they build their doc, their kind of systematic theology off of that foundational doctrine. That is the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God, right? Which we know, and we'll, we'll revisit those concentric circles a couple of times tonight. But, um, uh, we, we would argue that inerrancy is, uh, which Onika is going to unpack for us tonight, um, is not in the center of the concentric circles, but Christ is, and everything associated with him, the, the actual historical um, person of Jesus. So let's talk about what, what are some problems with a the theology that's grounded in and centered on the Bible. So if, if you're thinking, hey, all of, all of my doctrine, all of my theology stems from the Bible. I get it from the Bible. Um, kind of the, it's, it's the person who's, who, uh, who, when, when the, do, the doctrine of inerrancy or inspiration, um, illumination, all of these things, as we start to talk about these things, um, the person will like s- just staunchly defend um, the Bible because they feel um, assaulted because the implication is if you're assaulting the Bible, you're assaulting everything else that I believe, Right? Um, it becomes a, a really, um, well, frankly, uh, unhealthy, right? But the first question I would ask is, um, hey, if, if doctrine, if all doctrine is grounded in and stems from and is sourced in uh, our bibliology, how in the world did people come to faith in Christ prior to the writing of the New Testament? Well, what's the answer? Anybody? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there was a man named Jesus, right? He actually lived here, <laughs> right? He walked around and talked to people, and, and uh, is, as real as you and I are, uh, standing, sitting, breathing right now, right? Um, he actually lived. So there's a, actually a really, really strong tradition. Um, we would call it, uh, um, the, that's the source of, source of our orthodoxy, uh, of orthodoxy that goes um, all the way back to the early church fathers' To the apostles, um, namely to Jesus Himself. And so um we would say people came to faith in Jesus because there was actually a historical event that people saw. And they were like, hey, we saw that and we believe, right? Apart from any kind of canonized 27 books of the New Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, right? The second thing is um the, the controversial nature of the history of the canon becomes a much bigger issue for people, right? Guess what, guys? The canonization process of the 66 books of the Bible is not a clean process. There are Christians who believe that, th- that the Bible is the Old Testament, the New Testament, and a whole bunch of other apocryphal books that, you know, some of you guys might be like, what the heck's the apocrypha? We could talk about that if you want. But, um, but then there was, also a, there was also people that we would look at, namely like Martin Luther, who was just like, I don't like James. I'm tossing it out of the canon, right? It doesn't belong there. Some of the earliest canon, canon uh, councils who met to to you know vote or uh, decide on uh, the the authenticity. The um, it's not that they were determining the canon; they were discovering it. But that was not a, a this clean process. It was like, oh. the 66 books, you know, and then everybody started levitating and the Holy Spirit fell and everybody's breaking out in tongues. Right. It was, it was very much a, I mean, in the old Testament, there was a ton of people who never thought that Esther was, was in the Bible. Right. So is there 64 books of the Bible? Is there 65? Is there 66? Is, is there six, is there 70? Right. The Council of Carthage in, in 83 which was all of, which was the one we look back on and say, yes, that was the 66 books of the Bible. Guess how many books they canonized? 70. There was the 39 of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament, and four apocryphal books, Right? So I, I'm just looking at this like, hey, if you're going to defend the 66 books of the Bible, you are, and that is the, the source by which, hey, this is the inspired and errant word of God, you are immediately backpedaling, right? If, if when someone begins to attack your faith, all right? Now, don't hear me say that I, that I don't believe that we have a canon or anything like that. We're going to spend the rest of the time unpacking that. I'm just saying that's not the, the source that you should ground all of your doctrine in, Okay. Um, do what? So when, when someone is like, hey, when it, let's say that we are coming at it from a, a uh, kind of our bibliology is, I'm sorry, our theology is grounded in our bibliology. And someone brings up some of these controversial issues that, frankly, a lot of the people that I know who are staunch like uh, biblicists uh, don't know history very well. So if someone begins to attack from a historical standpoint, like, hey, well, what about this and what about this and what about this? You, you, there, there is no like solid, clean answer for that. So if someone's attacking the inerrancy of, or, or the uh, inspiration or the infallibility of scripture um, on historical grounds and your theology is based in your bibliology, then you immediately are like, well, uh, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. There's just problems. Um, if, if all of the eggs, all of your eggs are in that basket that, does that make sense? That's what I mean when I say you're backpedaling because it's not like a, it's not a clean line in the sand where we're saying, yes, absolutely, this is a really clean process. This is exactly when it was canonized. This is exactly the 66 books because history just tells us that's just not the case, right? The canon is uh, has been a notoriously uh, messy process, all right? There's actually, I'd love, in fact, fi- um, maybe in the near future, I might find a way. Um, Uh, to go through this. But there's a a class I taught called Discovering Scripture um, that goes through all of the the canonization process. Really fascinating. But uh, anyway, I'm giving you a commercial for something that doesn't exist. So um, maybe if it does, you can read about it in the Watermark News and sign up for that class. Um, Any other questions about that before we move on? You guys tracking with me so far? All right. So thirdly, difficult textual issues become exponentially more problematic. All right, we'll talk a little bit about textual criticism tonight and, and what that is and how it affects um, our view of inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, all of those things. But if someone is saying, if from like, let's say you're, we're talking from like a biblicist um, standpoint, which is like, hey, no, it is these 66 books, it is all of these down to the letter, and you're defending it as if the text is God, right? then um, uh, the problem is, is, is that we have uh, not, uh, it's not that we have less than a hundred percent of, of God's in- inspired word. It's that we have 105%. Does that make sense? So over the years, there've been variants, there've been additions, there have been things, um, where scribes were copying and they, uh, added words to smooth over a text or, um, something like that. Right. And, and, and so we, it's, it's the job of a textual critic to determine, hey, what is that 5% and how do we weed it out, right? So, um, and, and the, frankly, the answer is we, we don't know exactly what the autographer or the original text says in every particular. Now, we know what like 99.9% of it, right? But if, again, if you're a biblicist arguing and, and attempting to defend this, from a, uh, a defending your theology based on your bibliology, then you're in a world of hurt, right? Because we don't even know. And so there needs to be a, a measure of humility about this as we come to the text. Um, fourthly, inerrancy claims are circular. So if you come, and I, I, I see this all the time as someone who leads our apologetic ministry, right? I mean, almost every single. Night that we have great questions, people come in and ask about the reliability of Scripture. And if my only answer to them was, well, we believe that Scripture because Scripture says that it's authoritative, right? That is not an answer. <laughs> I mean, it might be an answer for the people in this room, and I think it's a good answer for the people in this room, right? Um, because Scripture does affirm itself, and that's actually a really important point. But it's circular, right? The text is authoritative because the text says it's authoritative, therefore it's authoritative because the text says it's authoritative. I'm going to keep saying authoritative and my tongue's going to get tied, but the reasoning is circular. So, um, uh, if, if we're attempting to defend our theology based on our bibliology, then obviously that becomes problematic. And then frankly, the biggest, uh, problem I see with, um, a bibliology, I mean, I'm sorry, with a theology grounded in and centered on the Bible is that Jesus becomes secondary, right? Um, and when Jesus becomes secondary, you have gone off the rails, all right? You are doing something else, but it's not Christian, okay? Um, what I would tell you is, and, and I see this all the time. I, I put two words up there. One is biblicism. The other one is bibliodolatry, okay? And this is where people, um, they open their Bible, and, and they think that, um, that by reading the Bible, by doing what the Bible says, by a strict obedience to the Bible that they can find life there. Because, um, guess what the Bible is? The Bible is God, right? And that is a massive, massive, massive mistake that, and Lord Jesus, help us not make that. Okay. Um, so a few things, um, I don't know how that got up there, but slides got switched around. Sorry. So, to to, to my point, I mean, I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 5, where he's talking to the Pharisees, right? The people, frankly, who looked a lot like us, to be honest, okay? And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Um, But that's the scriptures that bear witness about me. Um, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, right? So, so... The, the, the primary purpose of the scriptures, um, according to Jesus, is to testify about Jesus. Right? It's I mean, what? Which is this is an amazing claim. Um, I would encourage you if if you've um, um, if you've got the the time, um, our next core class is actually the life of Christ, and we go pretty in depth into the claims of Jesus. What did Jesus claim about himself? This is one of the most astounding claims that Jesus ever made about himself was, hey, you know that book that you've been reading for like thousands of years? Everything in it um, leads up to and talks about me, right? So put the pen down, here I am, right? And then everything that the New Testament writers wrote, guess what they wrote about? They wrote about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, (laughs) right? Right? So at the very center of our theology is a person. His name is Jesus. He is the word of God. Um, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? He's not saying, he's not saying that everything that wrote about him um, was wrong. He was saying, no, it's right. But I'm the only one that can fulfill it, right? So um, I mean, that's why in Hebrews chapter one, it says in the past, God spoke through our ancestors, through the prophets, at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, right? So he spoke, through the, he spoke to the ancestors, through the prophets, many times, various ways. He's talking about um, the, the God-inspiring scripture through the prophets. But in these last days, the ultimate uh, revelation of God is in not a book, but in a person, um, the person of Jesus Christ. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also, oh yeah, and by the way he made the universe. You know, um, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans ten two to four. Love this passage. For I bear witness, um, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He's talking about the Israelites, um, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for everyone, uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay? Are you seeing that what, what Scripture is talking about when it's talking about um, uh, our theology being centered in and growing out of Christ? <clears throat> So here's some inductive, and Dan in his article talked about the difference between kind of a deductive approach, which is the circular reasoning, and an inductive approach, which is rooted in history, and in, in, uh, in, in other doctrines, in, in, uh, in the text itself. So inductive reasons to hold to a high bibliology. So, so you might be thinking like, well, man, you sound like you're not very high on the Bible, <laughs> right? And I'm like, no, I am. Um, I'm I'm probably as high as anybody in this room on, on scripture, but there's, but a lot of times um, uh, how we arrive at that being high on scripture um, is sourced in two different ways. And frankly, it takes you to two different destinations. Okay. One of them is healthy. The other one's not so much, right? So inductive reasons to hold to a high bibliology. One, the books of the Bible are recognized as historical, even if somebody doesn't grant that they're inerrant. So a lot of times people would be like, well, if, you know, if we say that the Bible has errors in it, then how can we trust anything at all? And, and what any historiographer would tell you is no, nobody takes extreme stances like that. It's not an all or nothing deal. So just if there's an error in it, or there's a textual variant that we're like, I'm not sure or whatever, if there, if there's an actual error in it, um, which is different from the textual variant where we're not sure one of them is right. Right. But we'll get to that in a second. Um nobody is saying from a historical standpoint that if there's an error in it that you toss the entire thing out the window. Right? Um we would say no, they're they're actually these things actually have historical value as documents that were written and transcribed by by eyewitnesses then pushed down through fa- through faithful copyists. In fact, um m- most people would say one of the most well-preserved I mean I, I think it's obvious the best preserved ancient text is the text of the New Testament, right? Um, and people who are like, no, it has errors in it will still recognize that. Um, that especially the four gospels are, are very unique works of, of literature in their own right. <laughs> Secondly, um, the biblical writers are a reliable source, and they held a high bibliology themselves. So when you look at it, you're thinking, hey, who wrote the New Testament? And um, based on who wrote the New Testament, what do we know about these men? Well, we know a bunch of different things from a bunch of different historical sources about the men, who, uh, who wrote and copied the New Testament down through the ages, right? Which, which begs the question, well, like, well, what about those guys? Are they trustworthy, reliable men? And the general overall answer is, yeah, they are. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence that showed that they, that they wrote the text and transcribed it and faithfully transcribed it um, at, at extreme price and cost to their own well-being, right? So that tells us something about them. And then we know from, uh, especially a lot of the church fathers who were not known for their brevity, right, who wrote and wrote and wrote all, the, all this stuff, we know from them that, that, um, that their Christology and their bibliology was uh, extremely high, okay? So they themselves are affirming the text of Scripture. And then lastly, the criteria of authenticity um, shows that Jesus himself held a high view of Scripture, Okay, and I would tell you if I'm placing these in if I'm placing these in order of why I hold to a high view of Scripture, that's the number one reason why. Right? Why do I hold to a high view of Scripture? Because Jesus did. And if Jesus does, man, if you want to disagree with him, all right, right, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> lastly, um, and I, I thought Dan said this really well. Um, this is a great little, in fact, I think it was italicized in the actual article. He said, the reason I hold to a high bibliology is because I hold to a high Christology. Jesus had a high view of the text, and it strikes me that I would be unwise um, to have a different, a view different from his. Indeed, I believe it would be on dangerous ground if I were to take a different view of the text than Jesus, than Jesus did. Thus, my starting point for a high bibliology is Christ himself. All right, and then the, I'll read the last paragraph Of the article. And then, if you have questions um, after I finish this, uh, feel free to raise those. If Christ is at the core of our beliefs, then the incarnation has to loom large in our thinking about the faith. When God became man and invaded space time history, this serves notice that we dare not treat the Bible with kid gloves. The incarnation not only invites us to examine the evidence, it requires us to do so. The fact that our religion is the only major religion in the world that is subject to historical verification is no accident. It is part of God's design. Jesus performed miracles, healings in specific towns, at specific times, on specific people. The Gospels don't often speak in generalities. And Paul mentioned that 500 believers saw the risen Christ at one time and then added that most of these folks were still alive. These kinds of statements are the stuff of history. They beg the reader to investigate. Um, Too often modern evangelicals take a hands-off attitude toward the Bible because of a prior commitment to inerrancy, but it is precisely because I ground my bibliology in Christology rather than the other way around that I cannot do that. I believe it is disrespectful to my Lord not to ask the Bible the tough questions that every thinking non-Christian is already asking it, right? Really good. Okay. Um, at the end of the day, the reason that I wanted you to read this and the reason that I want you to read this on this night is because we all come in here from a, from a bunch of different backgrounds. And I know from the background that I came from, right, um, man, we started with inerrancy. That's where we started. And, and I, I want, uh, if, if tonight can serve as a corrector for you, I want, to, I want us to start from a different and frankly from the right spot, right? So that, so that scripture can be viewed as it's supposed to be, namely the book that testifies, that the written word of God that testifies about the word of God, namely Christ himself, right? If you are reading the Bible, but, are not, but you're not substantively connecting to Jesus, then you're not reading the Bible the way that it's supposed to be read, all right? Man, we, we ninja throwing star stuff at people all the time, right, oh, I got this problem, I got a verse for that, you know, you're like, oh, okay, uh, that fixed me, I think. Actually, it created more pain, you know. <laughs> um, but we got a verse for everything, right? And we'll take stuff out of context. We'll, we'll do this or that. and um, Because ultimately, as we minister, we're thinking that if we just throw the Bible at them, that it will heal them. And that's not true, right? Um, people are healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, who uses the Bible as a tool to engage their hearts, mend the brokenness there, and redirect them to Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through four, to fix their eyes on Jesus, right? The author and the perfecter of, the, of, of that person's faith, right? If you're reading the Bible, but are not substantively connecting to Jesus, um, I would encourage you to rethink how, how you're doing things, all right? So a few minutes to ask questions, and then I'll let, Nike's itching, I'll let her come up here. Anybody have any questions? Yeah. What what's your name again? I'm Laura. Uh Kara, sorry. Almost. Hair in the way. <clears throat> what's up, Kara? Uh, historical verification. Mm-hmm. Is that- Yeah, so the historical verification, what her question is, hey, what about historical verica- verification? Is that just something that invites us to investigate it so we can verify what's going on? Um, so Dan talks about the criterion of, of authenticity. And, and in that, there's a bunch of different criterion for authenticity um, that the four Gospels um, fit into. The, name, the, the primary one he talks about there is the criterion of dissimilarity, um, which basically says, hey, if a person said something that uh, differed from the primary teaching of the day— then that is a criterion that like, hey, this is probably authentic. Like people don't just like make stuff up like that. If something is inauthentic, it would track right along the same narrative line of, of everybody else because that's what everybody else is talking about. So that was one of the things that Dan talks about. There's a bunch of other ones. And basically what, uh, it goes back to the last, the last paragraph of Dan's article where he's like, hey, um, God, God has revealed himself in history um, uh, through like Hebrews uh, chapter one talks about. Um, to the ancestors through the prophets and many others at, at many different times. And, but ultimately, he's revealed himself through the person of Jesus. And then the New Testament writers are writing about Jesus. And so ultimately what he's saying is this is, this is something that happened in history. Because it happened in history, we, we can look at evidence um, to verify, like, yes, this is actually historical. Um, this is historically reliable. And it's something that it's still faith, right? Um, but it's not a leap of faith. It's a reasonable Faith, right, and that and and is grounded in the the historicity of the person and work of Jesus. Um, Yeah, (laughs) no other. I mean, every other world religion is based on um, someone's teaching that they received from. Like, I'm I'm thinking of Muhammad immediately comes to mind. Even though he's a historical figure, um, the experiences that he has that causes him um, to write are extremely subjective. Joseph Smith is in the same category, right? Joseph, uh, so Muhammad receives these things from an angel that nobody else sees. Um, Joseph Smith sticks his head in a hat in the woods while he's high and, and sees the golden plates, right? Right. Um, these are, these are things that you can't historically verify. But Paul is saying the very center of Christianity is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, verses uh, 3 through 6, Hey, um, I, I'm passing on to you what, what was first given to me um, by the apostles, namely that Christ um, died on the cross according to Scripture, that he was buried, um, that he rose from the dead according to the Scripture, and then he appeared to a bunch of people. Um, to Peter, and then the 12, and then to 500 people at once, most of whom are still alive, but some of them have died, right? It's those types of statements. That's why Dan said, this is the stuff of history. Um, these are the things where, where Paul is inviting people to investigate because he's confident that if you investigate this, you will find that it's historically reliable. And, and frankly, if you historically investigate it, you're going to come face to face with the person of Jesus Christ, and you will not be the same. Right. Marm, what's up? Yeah, um, so I appreciate what you're saying, especially with like the danger of worshiping the Bible yep. more than Jesus. Yep. I guess what I'm curious about then is where is the source of your Christology if it's not the Bible? Because it seems circular again. Like yep. I'm, 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 my Bibliology is grounded in my Christology, yep. but my Christology is grounded in the Bible. Yep. So. Yeah, so Dan is not saying that, that Scripture is not an important source of, of knowledge. It's, he's just saying you don't have to be an inerrantist to recognize the historical value of the documents themselves so a lot of times when people think of the bible they think of oh yeah it's that book that has they don't even know it has 66 books and they think of it as of one unified book it wasn't like that for a long time in the early church you passed around a document if you got a copy of Matthew that was your bible you know if you got a copy of Mark that was your bible if you get a and, mo, and and vastly the, the the one that outnumbers all of the other ones is the gospels. I mean, it's like the gospels and then like everything else, right? And so, um, I mean, and that's where Dan would say, "Hey, yeah this this is um, um, this is something that uh, when we're viewing the gospels as historical documents first, instead of books that just fit in to the sixty six books of the Bible that we're calling an errant." And so, it's rooted. It's what he would say is it's rooted. It is rooted in history. There is historical verification processes that we would apply to any other book in antiquity. And so, honestly, you arrive at the foundation for your Christology um, through those criterion of authenticity measures, through investigating the evidence, through these types of things, and also the text itself, but not the text itself alone. That's, That's the difference. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, why don't I table that? Because we're, we plan on talking that toward the end of the, uh, the, end of the class. Anything else? I do. Yep. Okay. What's your name? Barbara. Barbara, what's So up? I, we have to back up. Okay. okay. So you said
1: that there's a right and wrong way to read the Bible, right? Did you say that?
0: No, I said there's a right way to ground your theology, uh-huh. and there's a wrong way to ground your theology. And I'm saying that the wrong way is to ground it solely in the basis of the Bible.
1: Mm-hmm. And, like, my parents died when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have parents teaching me, let's go have quiet time and all this stuff. Totally. But I would pick up my Bible and I'd read it and, you know, God, I knew God. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that the Bible was, you know, but I think that His Word is living mm-hmm. and breathing. Yep. And it's life. Yep. And so, he, for me, He's in me, I am Him. Mm-hmm. You know, and so... That was like, when I was listening to it, I was thinking, okay, now, you know, I am hope I'm not, like, when I'm reading the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, because if I'm not in a theology class or this or that, yep. you know, I'm trying to study His Word and spend time with him, mm-hmm. and he's teaching me, and I'm trying to hide it in my heart. Right. He said it, it would be simple. Mm-hmm. For, you know, not if we have that, that mind of a professor or we have right. just a, you know, somebody's plow. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... You know, you don't ever want to get it wrong, but, you know, if he talks to you and you just do his words and do people, then that's okay. Yep. That Was there a question in there, or are no, you just...
0: Like, you're, you're, you know, like, when you were saying that, <laughs> I just thought, you know, it is his word. It is mm-hmm. abiding with him. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so, so what I... I'm glad you spoke up. What I don't want you to hear me say is, wasn't here yeah, right, long. right, and, and i which is, I'm glad I'm, um, you spoke up, and we are going to, what you're talking about right now is the doctrine of illumination, we're going to talk about that toward the end of the class tonight, um, because you're right, um, what I'm talking about is, um, when we, um, when we are, um, here, here's what I'm trying to dispel, I'm trying to dispel someone from, from thinking that um, the Bible is the end of, um, the Bible is the end of, of, of their doctrine, like instead of a means to an end. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I, I think there's a lot of people in evangelicalism today. The Bible is the end, right? And that's what I'm, that's what I'm warning against in the, in the biblicism and the bibliodolatry. I mean, I had a friend of mine who said he was talking about another a person, but, but he was like, man, this person reads their Bible all the time and they get up and they act like they never read it and they act like they, they don't know God. Why? Because they left their God on the table. Right. And I was like, dang, dude, that was, (laughs) you know, and, and I would just say like, uh, what I'm, but it's, this is a, this is a nuance to a conversation that, um, that happens around, um, uh, especially Bible churches a lot. Um, but it's, but it's an important one because even though you might start in two really close, two places that are close to each other, the roads are, are leading to two different places. So the further down the road you get, the more you realize, okay, I've gone wrong here somehow. And that is that people view, view the Bible as um, the end of, of, of doctrine itself and that, that life is actually found in the Bible. And we're saying, no. The Bible is is a tool that you can use that testifies about Christ that connects you to the power of through the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ Himself. Right, that's what I'm saying. That's good. Thank you. Couple more, and then we'll just have to play by ear. <laughs> um, you had your hand up first. What's your name? Nathan. Nathan. Boom. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one, I think you need to do your homework. I mean, it always, it always helps to know what you're talking about. Um, and I don't, I don't say that in like, a uh, um, any kind of negative way. It's just, if you're coming to a conversation, you're not equipped to talk about the things, then you're disadvantaged, um, from the outset. So I think that's really important. Second, so be equipped. Um, you're going to hear that from the equipping team, be equipped. Um, but then, secondly, I, I think that there's I think there's there's really um, um, skillful ways and kind of an art form. This is not a science, right? Um, so um, you engage. I tell people all the time, I'm like, ministry would be so so easy if it wasn't for people, right? Um, because people are not a science; they're an art form, and so it's going to depend on the nature of the person you're speaking with. I, I typically ask a lot of different questions um, to the person who. Uh, who is speaking to, to attempt to, to discern the origin of, uh, of, of their way of thinking. So they're going to make some claims and I'm going to be like, hey, that's interesting. How did you arrive at that conclusion, right? So questions like that are really effective because it allows them to mentally go back and be like, well, that's actually a good question. How did I arrive at this? I arrived at this because I grew up in a church that crammed this down my throat and I never thought about it for five minutes, but I'm spewing it at you right now, you know. Um, something like that. Um, and, and then if the person is like, well, and they're actually presenting real evidence, then you're equipped enough to be like, hey, that's interesting. I'd love to have this conversation, you know, um, con- continue. Have you considered this evidence, right? Because frankly, guys, I mean, I think once you do your homework, like the evidence is really clear. Um, the people, you know, look at it and they're like, oh, yeah, of course, right? Uh, the, the trouble is, is that we have a lot of kind of armchair and, and you know, knee-jerk type theologians who, uh, tabloid theologians, if you want to call it that, from last, from last month, who haven't done their homework. And, and so it becomes difficult. But that's, that's a shepherding opportunity to be able to help people. Because, I, I mean, just as dangerous as anything else that you hear in regional on Monday nights is the person who worships the Bible, right? It's really dangerous. Um, it's, 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 it's Christianity without Christ. And I'm like, dude, um, yeah. So it's a shepherding opportunity. And then one more, and then uh, we got to keep moving.
2: Okay. So you said, and I didn't get the whole thing. So I'm hoping you
0: can draw back. Mm.
2: You said that there's a healthy way and an unhealthy
0: way mm. to do inductive. No, 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 no. Deductive, starting from iner- inerrancy and and moving from there is unhealthy. That's what I. That's what I was saying. The inductive approach of um, the historical uh, criterion for authenticity. The exegetical work, the kind of uh, um, uh, the progression of the doctrine itself as you look back to, hey, who held this and why did they? Those are all, you're going to, now you're dealing with a ton of different sources that are going to affirm the uh, reliability and inerrancy of the text as opposed to just saying, well, it's inerrant because the text says it's inerrant, um, right? So the deductive one is unhealthy. The inductive one, I think, is, is really healthy, all right? All right guys, hey, if you have other questions, um, then obviously catch me afterwards, um, but do, do we want to go ahead and take a break now and, uh, I'll do half and then we'll break. OK, cool. All right. everybody, Nike balding. Yeah.:
2: Is that too?: It's a good thing the AV team is taking our class.: Ooh. Ooh. Check, check, check. Thanks, Matt. Um, I would also add, Nathan, to your question. We Dan Wallace was instrumental in both of our educations at the seminary level. And one of the things he would say is he said, you know, truth is truth. It's going to stand up under any amount of scrutiny. Yeah. And I think oftentimes what I would mm-hmm. say the reason why people don't grapple with it is I think they're scared of what they may find. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what we often find is that people go half a step and they'll read a bunch of criticisms of the Bible, or they'll read a best-seller list from Bart Ehrman or something like that, and they go, oh my gosh, we got it all wrong. And we're going, hey, take it a full step. I mean, there are <laughs> counters to those guys. Believe it or not, we have answers. And we can't tell you how many times people send us an article, and they think it's totally groundbreaking. And I'm like, yeah, I read that 10 years ago. And we've got an answer for that. And so I'm just telling you, if, if what we're believing is true, It's going to stand up under any amount of scrutiny. And if it's not, stop believing it. Really, if if you're betting your life on this, and all of you in this room should be because you claim to be members here, which means you should have given us your testimony, and you filled out a four beam this year, right?
0: And you affirmed a doctrinal statement. And so you
2: affirmed a doctrinal (laughs) statement. So you're saying, I believe in this thing, and I'm betting my life on it then do not be scared of it. And if you are scared of it, dig a little deeper Mm -hmm. because I promise you'll be more and more amazed at what you find. So this class is actually covering a book called Wayne Grudem, not Dan Wallace, but you will get that confused (laughs) the weeks we teach. And so if it's all the same to you guys, I guess we'll look at the book a little bit right now. Um, I'm going to cover authority and inerrancy and, and do so briefly. And then at the end of our time... The big takeaway people always ask is they go, okay, great. You guys can say all of that, but what do I say? What do I say when I walk out of here? Because I'm not going to remember the 30 minutes of lecture you just gave me. What's the five-minute spiel? And then I'm going to give you guys that. And so we'll break it up, talk a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back and finish out this part. So we'll move on. Authority. The definition of authority, as you guys read in your book, is this. All the words in Scripture are God's words, and in such a way, because they're God's words, that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Alright? How many of y'all read that? And you're like, yeah. Yeah. And so he does us a favor, and he says, okay, if this is true, what must be true about this statement? And so we go through, and we begin to look at, if this is the definition of authority then can we actually say that all of God's words are in Scripture? Scriptures, or take that back, not that. Not all of God's words are in Scripture. I did not say that. That's heresy. All the words in the Scripture belong to God, though. Is that true? And we'll look at that claim. And then if so, to disbelieve or disobey any of them is to disbelieve or disobey God. And we'll look at the two of them, okay, separately. So let's look at that first claim. Are all the words in Scripture God's words? Well, first thing, it's what it claims about itself, Okay, so we see this in a number of different ways. We see passages that say, thus says the Lord, right? Or uh, passages that that talk about, this is the word from God to the prophet. Um, We have places in scripture that, uh, and you guys, if you read Dan's article, and you know that he spent 1,200 hours looking up the article, or actually the lack thereof of an article on a noun, 1,200 hours. The guy's insane. He's, all he studied was the lack of an article, so whether the the was there. I'm like, good for you, man. And so what he came up with was that 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. The Scripture, the word for Scripture that you guys read is the Greek word graphe. That word graphe, when used in the New Testament, exclusively of the Old Testament. So Paul, at least, is saying, hey, all of the Old Testament is inspired by God. And so we have these claims about Scripture to itself that the authors that wrote Scripture, uh, the verse that, that that Nate's mentioned a couple of times, Second Peter one twenty one, men were moved along by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and spoken by God. These these things were written. God carried them along. God inspired this thing. Um, we continue on in, in Paul's letters, and from so Peter calls Paul's letter in Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen. He calls Paul's writings graphe as well. And so there's this understanding that not only is the Old Testament graphe, but also what Paul wrote was graphe. There seems to be this early understanding in the church that what Paul is writing is different than just your normal correspondence to Cindy Lou on your way out to war. Okay, this was something important. I don't know what that reference was. It's not like I was around for wartime. That was weird. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, so that's that's a lot of the Old Testament, and and that one was the New Testament. And then we have 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul calls Deuteronomy... Um, 25, 4, and Luke 10:17 scriptures, showing, again, that the early church recognized this. And so you've got Paul quoting Luke, saying, this is scripture, okay? And so are the words of God in scripture, are those, are this? I keep saying it backwards. I'm seriously gonna be excommunicated. <laughs> the words in scripture, are they God's words? Well, the scripture itself testifies to it. And that's a pretty strong argument, since we do have a high view of scripture, not as high as a heretic, but high enough. <laughs> Um, not only that, the second thing, we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read it. How many of y'all read your Bible? More hands should be up. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when you read it, there's this thing that happens where the Holy Spirit inside of you begins to do this weird thing, right? I mean, when you read it, isn't it different than when you're reading the morning news? Or anybody get the skim in the morning, get your news source? Yeah, girls, what's up, right? Yeah, yeah, or you're reading, I, I don't know, even Pilgrim's Progress, something that's spiritual, but it's it's not the same thing. Okay? And so this is this is powerful. What often happens at times is people are looking for an argument against the word and they, they will not validate your personal experience. And I just go, that's silly. That is silly. What in what other place does your personal experience not count? Right? If you're going to sell something and you're like, this is the greatest product ever, do you use it? No. Well, I don't believe you then. And so there is something incredible that happens when the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate. We'll talk about illumination a little bit more, but that's another reason that we begin to go, are these the words of God? Well, something special begins to happen when I read the this, this scriptures out loud or quietly, however you do your quiet time. Um, this part where then this was interesting to me. So I just, I think you guys will find as you read Grudem, I hope there are times that you go, yes. And then I hope your times you go, huh? Cause that's how you should read everything. This is one of those times that I went, huh? Cause he says other evidence is useful, but not finally convincing. I think it's more than useful. I think it's really useful. Like we just said, our book is grounded in history. So we check facts. We check dates. We go back and read what people wrote. We see, hey, Josephus wrote about this also, and it seems to be the same thing. To the question, you know, uh, Matt, you talked about, is our Christology grounded in our Bibliology and Bibliology grounded in da, 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 da Well, part of what one of the classes that we talk about is just evidence for the resurrection that's outside of the Bible. You know, what do we do with the empty tomb? What do we do with other sources? What do we do with all this information that's not coming from Scripture that we use to bring about towards the text? And so, although it doesn't convince us that it's God's word, it gives us this compelling argument that these words are different, special, and stand up against scrutiny. And that matters. That absolutely matters. Um, Here comes the circular reasoning part. The words of scripture are self-attesting. So again, the words themselves say they're God's words. So then the question is, okay, but how can they just claim that about themselves and it be true? Well, because they're grounded in the fact that we're saying God wrote it. And so if you want to argue with it, you have to take God to task. And while some people go, well, okay, that's a big assumption that you're making there. I'm like, fine, take it out with God. So that's your answer to that one for them. And so is this a circular argument? Yes, but some circular arguments are valuable if what they're grounded in is something greater that God himself is making this claim about the scriptures. And so we can stand I'm on fairly good argument there, and that's part of what Grudem wrote, and I thought he did a good job with this section. If y'all made it that far, you don't have to tell us if you did or not. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll start asking more specific. I'm just kidding. Um, the other thing about this, the words of God. So uh, sometimes when you think about how scriptures were written, you think that maybe Paul's sitting there with his quill, um, and probably didn't have a quill. So he's sitting there with his quill, and he's got his parchment, and he's like, okay, now what? Okay, And that's probably not what happened, okay? (laughs) So just keep that in mind. So when we talk about God's words, we don't think a voice was coming down from heaven and just booming. Now, we do think that also happened. I mean we think when the gospel writers say that there was a voice from heaven saying this is my son in whom I well please listen to him we actually believe that happened crazy I know a voice from heaven came down so there are places where that happened but there are also other places where it seems to be that Luke writes at the beginning of his gospel hey I got an eyewitness account and I gathered all of these things for you Theophilus so you can evaluate and know these things and so just keep in mind when we say that these are the words of God we're not necessarily saying that God is whispering in Hebrew to the to Moses and going this is every you know? And so just know that when you're evaluating this claim, that it can come through different sources. Are you guys with me so far? All right. So that's the first part. If this is authoritative, then they must be the words of God. I think they're the words of God. I think they're the words of God because they say they're the words of God. I think they're the words of God because God's saying they're the words of God. I think they're the words of God because Jesus held a really high view of it, right? So the first half, we're good with that one. Then the second half is, well, then to disbelieve or disobey any of it means you are disbelieving or disobeying God. I'm going to temper this in a little bit, but for the sake of argument, go with me on this one. So, to disbelieve or disobey God is a pretty big deal. I don't know about you guys, but I try to not disobey God, at least not on Sundays. So... So uh, our first claim here in this Luke twenty four twenty five passage, Jesus is saying this and he's saying, hey, and he said to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So we have Jesus himself saying, hey, you're not obeying the scriptures, this graphe, this thing, and this is a big deal. And so if they are the words of God and then they are authoritative, then mean to disobey them means it's a big deal. We have Jesus himself making this, this claim on them. We continue on and we've got in John fifteen twenty. Uh believers are supposed to obey the disciples' words as well. So not only are they supposed to believe the Old Testament and obey the Old Testament, but they're supposed to believe and obey what they're hearing from the disciples. So in John's gospel, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so here's John going, hey, remember this. You need to know this. You need to understand this. And there is this expectation that we're going to believe and obey what even John is giving to us in the first century. Furthermore, to to disbelieve or disobey could mean consequences. So 2 Peter 3, 1 through 12 this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And oh, that was a different one. So here's the disobey one. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So again, there's this understanding, even in the very earliest of churches, if you're not doing what we tell you to do, if you're not doing what we're telling you to do because God's telling us to tell you what to do, then you're disobeying and disobeying God, and there are consequences for it. And so when we talk about authority, this is a big word. It's a big word to say that the Bible's authoritative. If you're a member here, and again, you all better be, okay, Uh, then we tell you, what is the highest authority when you're in your community group? The Bible, yeah, absolutely. Why? Because Sally comes in and she's frustrated about something and Jane comes in and she's frustrated. And Sally's going, I'm telling you, it says this in scripture. And if Jane's like, I just don't care, what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to look at her and go, you're disbelieving and disobeying God. Not, not your friend, not your community, not just some ethereal being that the Bible itself, because it's the Word of God, and because we have this understanding that we're supposed to obey it and believe it, means that when we don't, we are disobeying and disbelieving the God who wrote it. And that's a, that's a much serious consequence. Like, it's one thing for you to disobey the babysitter, but what happens when the baby, like, when mom and dad come home? It's different, right? I don't know about y'all. Maybe not. Y'all must have been good kids. Everybody's like, I don't know. disobey the babysitter. I don't know. What are these words you're speaking of? fine, just me. You did not want to be my babysitter growing up. So what's the natural conclusion of this? Well, if the Bible is authoritative because it's the word of God and because it's the word of God, it should be obeyed and it should be believed. Then the Bible better be truthful, right? It it better be. And so how do we know that the Bible is truthful? How do we know that scripture is truthful? Well, the first one is this, is that God cannot lie or speak falsely. If scripture is God's words, then it should be trustworthy. Because they're coming from a man and a God and a spirit who cannot lie. And that's hugely important in our faith. And so therefore, and again, I'm going to temper this in a second. I can tell you're getting uncomfortable. Oh, you're good? Okay, all the words in scripture are completely true and without error in any part. We're going to get to that. We're going to temper that in a little bit. But this is a natural, logical conclusion for Grudem to come to. If God cannot lie, and all of scripture are God's words. Therefore, all words in scripture are completely true and without error in any part. And so that, that matters. This is beginning to get towards this definition of inerrancy that we're going to be talking about. So if they are completely true and without error in any part, then it follows that they're the ultimate standard of truth. So again, you're, you're debating if something is true. You're debating if something is reliable. If scripture speaks to it, then that becomes the standard of truth. That's what we default to. That's what we go to. That's the standard, the book, the scriptures that we're going to take into any counseling environment that we take into our quiet times, that we take into this life that we live. So what naturally would follow is the question, might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? What do you guys think? Yes. Who said yes? Yeah. Because it happens, right? Y'all watch the news. How many times do y'all see, I mean, CNN runs a report. When do they run it? Because something was found that what? Contradicts Scripture. So, what do we do with that? Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe the new report? What do, What do you guys think we do with that? Wait, it's a great answer, Angela. <laughs> I mean, <it's> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's a perfectly good example. So, there was uh, maybe I don't know eight, eight or nine years ago. There was a report from the University of Tel Aviv. I think it was or somewhere in the Middle East, and somebody wrote a report saying there's zero evidence that camels were domesticated prior to, like, the year 500. Well, what do you know about your Bibles? When were camels around? Yeah. In Abraham's time, which we believe is at least, at least, I mean, 2,000 years before that. I mean, at least is what we would say, right? So now we have a problem, don't we? And here's a trusted university saying no camel domestication. So you know what happened? An archaeologist wrote a paper years later, and you know what he found? All these drawings of men all over the place riding camels 2,000 years ago. And he's like, "Uh, actually, we have really good evidence for this. (laughs) Right? And so then, but you know which one got published more often? Not his. Not his. And so to Angela's point, we wait. One of the things that will help you in this is that people will present things, and we'll talk about this briefly, that are contradictory to scripture. Events, times, places. And then people ask me, well, then how are you still an inerrantist?" And this is what I'd say. We don't have all the information. We don't have all the information, but I still trust the Bible. And so although it may seem contradictory right now, I'm willing to give the Bible the respect that it deserves so that when a new report comes out, I'm not swayed by every one of them. I don't think Jesus is going to marry every virgin that they find a document about. I I just don't. I mean, I'm like, oh, okay, cool, we'll wait on that one. And usually somebody studies this document that they found that talks about Jesus' wedding, and then suddenly they are like, yeah, this was written in 800 A.D. I was like, well, it's kind of late for the wedding, so, you know. Yeah. So there are going to be times that that new facts might come out, and there are going to be times, too, that I want to point out that there are times that things come out that affect our understanding of Scripture, but they don't change the words of Scripture. So something might come out that helps us go, oh, that makes sense of this, right? So the early writers talked about the world revolving around the earth and and the the sun rising and falling around the earth, and we would go, my gosh, that doesn't make any sense. Well, We also are going to give credence to poetry and use poetry for what it's worth. And so there are going to be things that we discover through science, through things that will help us understand that maybe our interpretation of Scripture wasn't accurate, but it doesn't necessarily contradict Scripture. And that's a clear distinction that I hope we all can make as we come out of this. So any questions on the authority of Scripture? Yeah, Renee. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. so our question is, if I'm a non-believer, coming out with a lot of what he's just written, and you're saying, hey, the, part of the reason why we've been holding a high regard for Scripture is because Jesus does, but Jesus does in Scripture. So how do we avoid some of this circular reasoning for somebody who's a doubter about the authenticity of Scripture, right? And we're going to get to that after the break. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, that is a great question. And this is part of why I think it's so brilliant that God would couch his word in history. There, there are times that we talk to people that we just go, hey, I think if you would scrutinize this in a fair way, you might find that a lot of these dates work out, that there are prophecies that were given that come true so much later that you're going, there's no way you knew. Okay, there's no way you knew this was going to happen. This was given to you by somebody who had foresight of the future. And we are a kid, we are going to talk about this a little bit more the five P's of why we know scripture is reliable. But it's a very fair question, Renee, because if we're all in this camp and we're all just circling around, just quoting each other. It gets weird, right? Mm-hmm. We yeah. start to inbreed. Yeah. And then suddenly we're like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. we just, and so there is good reason to not be skeptical. It may not, may not fully cover it in the scope of this time, but.
0: Yeah, and I would just remind you, Renee, don't make the mistake of, of, of what I would remind the, the, the skeptic is hey, just because if you don't believe in, in inerrancy, don't make the, the mistake of tossing the entire thing out. It's still. And I have this conversation with atheists, agnostics all the time, who will grant a certain measure of historicity to the Gospels. And frankly, all you, that's all you need them to do. Um, which, if they don't do that, then they find themselves in much more difficult water from a historical standpoint, because they're an, ignoring an enormous amount of evidence to the contrary. That's good. That's what I would say.
2: Anybody else? If not, we'll move quickly into inerrancy, and then we'll get you guys to a restroom break. Or, I mean, you don't have to go to the restroom. I'm just suggesting it. <laughs> Things are getting weird in here. All right, in inerrancy. Here's the definition that Grudem gives. And this is, this is the section that Nate and I would go, ooh, if there was any section from our reading that we'd go, ah, that seemed a little too dogmatic for our taste. So just know that, that we're going to, Put our cards on the table right now. And so, inerrancy, as he defines it, inerrancy means that the original manuscripts, aka the original copy of the book of the Bible, so what Paul wrote on parchment, was free from error in all that it teaches, including dates, times, words spoken, et cetera. Okay? And so, inerrancy is this really broad term that just says the, the original, and the, you'll hear it say, the autographer, the autographs, the originals were completely free from error in everything that they talked about, in everything, okay? Um, And and I will tell you, I am an inerrantist. I I absolutely hold to this. And I realize that there are people who deeply love Jesus who do not. So just keep that in mind, that people who don't aren't necessarily flaming liberals far to the left. So...
1: (laughs) They're
2: just—they're just, they're just left. So, like, liberal just means left of me. Do y'all know that? That's all liberal means. So, we quickly apply those terms. And oftentimes, you look at the spectrum, and I'm like, they're not even moderate. Like, they're yeah. still conservative. Totally. But you look to the left, and you're like liberals. And you look to the right, you're like, guys, chill out, okay? And yeah. where you're at is always where you're supposed. A lot to of be. times,
0: if they're left of you, they may still be extremely conservative. You're just like crazy. Yeah. Maybe you're wrong. <laughs>
2: So keeping in mind with inerrancy, and so some, some people go, oh, I'm just not an inerrantist because in, in Proverbs it says da-da-da-da-da, and that's not always true. And I'm like, okay, well, you've got you've to allow Scripture to be read and understood in the genre that it belongs in, okay? So inerrancy, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. What I mean by that is I might go, holy cow, this room is full of people, okay? And then you might come back later and go, there are no holy cows. And you're going, that's not... Yeah. No, I know. It's a figure of speech. And so we allow for the Bible to do that. We allow for metaphors. We allow for poetry. We allow for hyperbole. We allow for these things in scripture because quite frankly, what writer doesn't get that permission? So sometimes we apply to the writers of scripture an incredibly unfair uh, test of authenticity when I'm going, hey, they're allowed to speak in parables. Jesus did it. Furthermore, the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. What we mean by that is Nate and I might have a conversation, you hear it verbatim, but then you replay it back to somebody and you just catch parts of it. That doesn't mean you got our conversation wrong, okay? And so when Jesus is telling a story, one author might summarize it this way, and another author might summarize it this way. We see it happen all the time in Scripture. That doesn't mean it's with error. It just means the author has the right to tell the story loosely or, or with different angles and things like that. Um. It is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. So, while these men are speaking God's words, they have the right to speak it weirdly. So, do you ever have people who just, like, speak in a weird cadence, or they just say things, and you're like, that's a weird turn of phrase, but all right. Or, quite frankly, their adverbs don't modify the right way. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Dangling participles, and you want to, like, make fun of them, but then... Like, well, that makes me a grammar nerd, so I'll just let this one go. Yeah. So you can have weird grammar, and even though you might, if you were a grammar teacher, take off points for it, but that doesn't mean you get to take off inerrancy points. Okay, the writers were allowed to have weird grammar in the original text. So, inerrancy says there's no error in the Bible whatsoever. There are people and and grounded people who will point out places in scripture that have apparent errors. I say apparent because I'm willing to grant the scriptures and I'm willing to grant God that we don't have all the information. But if you turn to Luke 2 right now and it starts out and it talks about a census by Quirinius. This is one of the big examples you will always hear that during the time of Augustus, Quirinius had a census during the time that Joseph is going to Bethlehem. Here's the problem. We don't have any record of that and we have records saying that did not happen when it happened. Just flat out. This is one of those texts that people look at and go, this seems like Luke got it wrong. Okay? So, there are people, because of things like this, that would go, I just don't believe in inerrancy. I think that the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. So what's the difference? Infallible says that the Bible is true about what it teaches. So, in that moment, somebody who holds a very high view of scripture goes, "Hey, I think there 's an error here, but I think what Luke was trying to do is saying that Joseph is fulfilling the scripture that was given long ago that the Messiah was going to come from here, and so he 's coming to fulfill his duty as a, as a citizen of this country, and that is going to be true, but the date and the time not true that 's the difference and so there are people who hold a very high view of scripture that says the Bible is true, and everything it, teaches, but not necessarily true in everything that it purports, like dates and times. And so this is why I just want to remind you guys, going back to the concentric circles, you can be a Jesus-loving, hardcore Christian at the front of the line singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and not believe in inerrancy. Now, <laughs> Grudem will make you think otherwise, and so we'll talk about that in a second, but these are the kinds of sticky situations that people go, we don't have a good answer for that, so maybe there's errors in the Bible. Now, guys, there's a handful. It's not like every time you turn the page, we're going, well, we don't know if that happened. I mean, there's good reason to believe the Bible is trustworthy. But there are a handful of places that we just go, we don't have a great place for that. So the question is, how am I an inerrantist knowing for where those places are? Because I'm willing to grant that we don't have all the information. There have been so many stories where we've gone, hey, this Old Testament passage is wrong because we don't have any record of this king ever, ever having kingship during this time. And then some archeologist uncovers something and then they're going, oh, there it is. There's the inscription. Now we've got it. Now we know what they're talking about now. And so I'm willing to grant, we don't have all the information. That's why I'm still an errantist and I'm just doubling down on believing that God preserved it in the way that he wanted to.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna insert on the Quirinius census. So the, the Josephus account, um, dates it like 10 years after um, the, the biblical account says that it happened. And, and the, what it, what, one of the possible answers to this challenge is that, um, so like, for instance, uh, the Affordable Care Act was passed, right? It wasn't put into action for like an, uh, almost a, a year, right? Like a year and a half or even, even longer than that. It took a long time for them to figure out, like, how's this all going to play out? they got to set up this website that crashed, like, 50 times, you know, <laughs> and all this stuff. And so it took us years to enact that. Like, how long it, a decree comes down from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken? How, how long do you think all that's going to play out and in it's, and its, like, practicality of implementing it? So um, you, you could have uh, one of the possible answers it, to that is, is that Joseph and Mary received the decree and went to Bethlehem, but then they stayed there for a while while all the census was being taken. And then, the, and then Josephus is referring to the end of the census that ended up playing itself out some, some 10 years later, right? Um, so that's, again, you, you can't just read the Bible and be like, oh, it says this and it says this. You have to allow it to fit in its historical context, and appreciate it for what it is. Another book I would reference to you is a, a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, inevitably, people are going to look at the Gospels and be like, man, there's a ton of contradictions in the, in the Gospels, because here Jesus is doing this. Chronologically, they don't line up. Jesus is saying uh, he's not using the exact verbatim words in some Gospels as he does to the others. And that's why what, what Nica said earlier about, hey, you have to allow the biblical writers um, the independence that they have to tell the story from an eyewitness perspective, um, but from their personal perspective to the audience that they're writing to. And so, just because things don't necessarily line up in our, in our strict Western mindset where two plus two always has to equal four, right, um, in a real scientific type way, um, again, um, reading the Gospels is also an art form. So, there's just a couple points yeah. I wanted to. Yeah, make that's on that. great.
2: So I just want to, we wanted, we both kind of got a little uncomfortable when we read Grudem's reasons for why you should be an inerrantist. And so I'm just going to run through and help you understand how a level-headed individual, one, might be offended by him, and then two, could go, well, this this is why I don't necessarily believe what he's saying. So he's saying, a serious moral problem confronts us if we're not inerrantists. May we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also. Well, this assumes that God was lying or the writers were lying. And so, you might come across a car accident, and somebody goes, Oh my gosh, it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and this car came barreling down and smashed into that car. And you look back at the clock, because you have the footage, and go, It was 3. Like, it wasn't 5. And, one, we would concede that that person, we wouldn't look and be like, You liar! Because they got everything else right about the whole situation. Instead, we may go, They have a broken watch. Or, they they're just were shaken up by what they've seen, or whatever. There wasn't any intentionalness in what they were doing, and so many of us in this room would not be like, You're a liar. And so... Some people like to emphasize more so the author's intent in the writing, such as especially in like a Luke account where Luke says, Hey, I set out with these eyewitnesses. And so we have in the West, we have this exacting demand on truth that in this time period they didn't necessarily have. And so it might have been for people in the first century to go, Well, three and five, what's the difference? And for us, we're going, It's a big difference. And so even the term inerrancy for some people is like, that's not even sure a level that the early writers would have put on it. I don't know if I agree with that, but this is one of those things where I'd go, I don't know that if you, if you believe that something's an error in scripture that you have to say that God's a liar and the writer was a liar. Fair enough? Okay. The next one is that if we begin to wonder if if there's any errors, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says guys, we know this isn't true, right? You've got a four-year-old who lies because they've got cookies all around their mouth, right? And you're like, did you eat the cookie? No. You know they're a liar. But they come to you and go, mom, Timmy's in, in trouble. He's outside. Like, we've got to go get him. Are you going to be like, I don't know. He lied about the cookies. Like, I, I don't know. Because what? There's a big difference between going, I don't want to get in trouble for the cookies and somebody's in danger. Will you come? We, we know this. We know that just because So people lie, doesn't, and again, this is assuming that there was lying even involved in that, but I don't think it's this massive slippery slope that says, in a few areas, I'm concerned about these dates and times and whatever, is to suddenly go on, I don't know if the resurrection was true, okay? So just don't buy into that slippery slope that people will sell your way. Um, If we don't believe in inerrancy, if we think that there might be errors, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself, I don't, I don't know if that's fair. I think God's given us minds to make inquis- inquisitions on the text, which we've encouraged you to do. And I think if God and the Spirit and his people are leading you in such a way that you're just going to have some honest concerns about this, I'm not sure I'm going to hold to the doctrine of inerrancy. I'm not sure that means that you're placing your mind above God's. Okay and so I, under, I, I understand his point, and I think there is an arrogance in that, that I think that there are times where we do make explanations, especially what were jesus 's last words on the cross, all the different gospel writers write something different i think there 's a great way to explain that, and I think some people are like no there 's an error, and they won 't go there, and I think there is a danger of arrogance in this, but i don 't know that every time it 's necessary out of arrogance um, and then also uh, we may also say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. And again, that's that slippery slope idea that you, you make one inch and we're going to concede a mile. And I just don't know if that's, that's true. And so let's take a five minute break. If you guys will be back in here at 8:30, I'll give you one extra minute, a six minute break and a generous. So if you'll come back in at 8:30, I'll quickly run through the five Ps and then we'll talk about, uh, the other stuff. Yeah okay if you guys will get out this paper this is your big sew up so you walk out here and go okay uh that blonde girl said a whole bunch of stuff by the way I just need to point out my shirt is so wrinkled which is why I'm wearing a cardigan that doesn't match but I realize it's not doing much for me I read that you can put ice cubes in your dryer and throw your wrinkled shirt in there and then five minutes later it won't be wrinkled so I did that and it wasn't and then I threw on my really hot shirt and got in my car and it like shrunk up on the way here so I asked a friend to bring me a cardigan, and then I was like, it doesn't match, does it? And she's like, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. So I just feel like we're all friends now. You can just know this is why I'm a hot mess, and don't expect anything different any other month. Okay, so this is the big takeaway right here. When people say what why is scripture reliable? To Renee's question, why should I touch this? I don't want your circular reasoning. I want to know, give me a compelling argument for why scripture is trustworthy, ergo, authoritative, ergo, I should follow it, ergo, I should study it, ergo, believe in the author and perfecter of my faith, which is in this scripture. And here it is. These are the five Ps you need to know. One, profession. Because Scripture claims to be inspired by God, written by men, who are moved by the Holy Spirit. So we've already talked about this. This is a bit of the circular argument part. But this is important. If it's not saying it's the Word of God, then it's not the Word of God. So we've got to start somewhere. So we start with saying, it says it's the Word of God. So that's profession. Production. This book should be on the New York Times bestseller list every year. The problem is they don't know if it's fiction or nonfiction, okay? So... (laughs) It's a work composed of 66 books written in three different languages by approximately 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years concerning hundreds of stories and topics, but united by one theme, Jesus Christ. This is an incredible book. You guys find three of you to get together and write a book and tell them the same story. And I promise you it will be awful compared to what, what God has done with this. And so the production, this work of God, this work as a, not only just a historical book, but as a Christian book, just everything else Fails to even stand up even close to this thing, which is amazing. Um, then we've got this criteria. So, why the 66? Nate touched on it earlier. So, people will always go, What about the Gospel of Thomas? I read about that. Why is the Gospel of Thomas not included in it? And I'm like, Well, first of all, it wasn't written by Thomas. And they're like, Oh, it wasn't? I'm like, No. And it was written 300 years after the Bible was written. And they're like, Oh, I'm like, Have you ever read it? And they're like, No. I'm like, It's just a bunch of sayings. And they're like, Oh, and I go, You want to know what the very last one is? And they go, what is it? I go, yeah. Uh, That Mary, if she wants to go to heaven, needs to have a sex change to become like a man. Anybody want to include that? I didn't think so. So that's my example. Some guys are like, I kind of do, but I don't want to raise my hand. No. So it's the weirdest book. Most of it's just sayings of Jesus. And then there's this a couple of weird ones in there that you're like, that's why it's not included. So if you look at your A, B, C, D of the criteria, there's a reason why the 66 books are in there. The first one, A, author, was the book written by a prophet, apostle, or someone who represented them. We're not, it's not being written 400, 500 years after Jesus came and did these things. Again, it's written by Paul, who's going, go ask the 500. If you don't believe me, go ask them, which is a really compelling argument. B, belief. Does the book accurately reflect orthodoxy, or is it talking about sex changes like the Gospel of Thomas? Does it convict and edify the church? Is it in accordance with what we're reading throughout the rest of Scripture? Consistent, yeah. And then D, distribution. Was the book widely accepted and circulated by the church? Nate said this, so it's important of reiterating. It, when the councils got together to affirm the 66 books, it's not that they were like, okay, what have y'all been reading? Oh, James, cool, I like that name. Okay, what have y'all been reading? Luke, never heard of it, great. We good? James Luke is in? Yeah? Thumbs up? Th- no, it was going, hey, what are y'all reading? We're reading, boom, 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 all 27 books. What are y'all doing? Okay, you've got 27 of them, but you have two extras. I oh, don't know about that. So they're, they're confirming what was already being circulated and recognized by the churches as Scripture. And so that's important. They didn't just get a bunch of powerful men in the room and go, all right, let, we're not leaving here until we decide on the top 27 best reads of the, of the century. Okay, it had been widely distributed. So that's, that's production. Then you've got preservation. This is the book of all books when you talk about antiquity. Our government our government is based on documents that maybe, maybe were written within a thousand years of when the Greek government even existed, and we probably maybe have ten skimpy copies of it. But we're like, that's what a democracy is. Okay? So people are willing to build their entire government on a couple of shreds of paper, but then they're like, well, is the Bible really trustworthy? I mean, do we have copies of copies? No. We have so many copies of this book. We know that people throughout the ages knew this book was special. We know that people would have, have enemies march in and go tell us where the manuscripts are, and scribe after scribe would end their life be- at their hands because they would not tell them where the manuscripts were. And they'd kill one. Do you want to be like your friend? Kill the other. Do you want to be like your friend? kill the other, throw them off of massive rock formations, hang them, all of these things, because they understood that the book that they were preserving, the book that they were writing, not writing, but copying, was valuable. And so you look at these statistics here. We have over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. Nothing comes close in antiquity to that. Nothing. That's copies. And we are consistently finding more. And in the craziest of places, guys, I'm telling you. This summer, I went to Greece. Nate's been to Albania. I went and photographed manuscripts in the National Library in Greece. We found manuscripts while we were there. That we found that that people would take old manuscripts and cut them apart and use them as bindings to put the codices back together. And so we're looking at these little slivers of paper and finding new biblical manuscripts. And guess what they say? What all their friends say. It's amazing, the, the documents that we have. If nothing else, I... My work in textual criticism, which is the science of how we got the Bible to what it is today, has, if anything, just like just dug this massive hole and dropped me in it as my foundation for my faith, and then the cement got poured over it to where I'm like, I don't think I could crawl out of that. I, I just, I've seen too much. This is an incredibly reliable, well-attested document, and, and then it happens to speak about this guy who died for my sins, which is pretty neat. Um, in addition to the Greek New Testament manuscripts, there's Latin manuscripts. We have over 10,000 of them. We have versions. We have Coptic and, and all these other languages that we have, as you see, ten to 15,000. And the church fathers who would quote scripture. We have over a million quotes of the, of the New Testament from these guys who are just quoting massive amounts of scriptures and telling us what they believed that it said at that time. We were writing 50, 60 years after the New Testament writers. If you look in this, in this chart here, you've got the author. You've got the oldest known manuscript and however many surviving copies of them they have. So you've got Plato. Okay, how many of y'all have read Plato's works, studied Plato? Yeah, you were tortured along with the rest of us. The earliest we have is 900 AD. That's the earliest we have of his. And we have seven, seven copies of his work. But you better believe we'll put every high schooler through that class, right? And we're pretty confident we know what Plato said. We, We have reason to be confident with seven manuscripts. And we've got so you're looking at how far apart all of these guys are between when they lived and when they wrote. And we're coming within just 50, 60, 70 years of when the gospel writers wrote and just thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And so when we talk about preservation, uh, the, the line that Dan always uses, we have an embarrassment of riches. We have, we have no reason to doubt that this book has been preserved. For prophecy. There are things that were claimed about Jesus that he did. That happened. That happened, That matters. Okay, and then finally, personal testimony. And again, people like, I don't think that matters. It matters. Okay, how many of y'all were saved because somebody shared the gospel with you? Yeah, that matters. Okay, and we should be telling people why we love this book because it talks about the Christ that we love. All right, I'll hand it over to Nate.
0: Love it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Stay up here if you want. Um, I don't. (laughs) Okay. Um. So yeah, this is a great. We use this quite a bit uh, in, in the on the apologetics team. Just the five P's, you can kind of commit them to memory, Mean profession, production, preservation, um, prophecy, and personal testimony. That's just a quick back, you know, um, somebody you meet on the street or whatever, is, hey, why do you believe this? Well, um, because um, of what it says about itself, how it's been produced. Um, you know, over 40 authors over, you know, uh, thousand years that all talk about, um, you know, the same person, Jesus. It's been preserved in these ways Um, actually there's all these prophecies that Jesus fulfills out of, out of the scripture. And then this is how it's changed my life. That's a good answer, right? For somebody that's asking um, why you believe um, this book to be true. One clarifying thing that I would make about, uh, what I said before, one of you guys caught me during the break and, uh, and just said, Hey, so you're not an inerrantist, you know, and I want to be really clear. I am. Okay. Um, I I think that there are issues with the text where I'm raising my hand and going, I don't know what to do with that. Um, But I can either fall on the deal where it's like, hey, this is wrong, or I can fall on the deal like Angela Angela said before. It was like, hey, I don't think I have enough information to come down hard on this, but I'm going to place my faith in the fact that Scripture is without error, okay? Because I do believe in the long run um, that there will come a time where I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, when you have all the information to be like, yeah, I, I think, and frankly, I'm an inerrantist because I think if you're not an inerrantist, you land in a lot, m- a lot murkier water um, than, you, than you do otherwise. You, there's a whole slew of problems that comes uh, with that. So I wanted to clarify that before we went on. Um, one, because that accurately represents my position, and, and two, um, because I don't want to get fired um, <laughs> for my job. Oh, <clears throat> Um, yeah, I feel like if anybody's gonna get fired, it might be us though. (laughs) What'd you say? Um, but I do want to, I, you know, and and the point I made, um, to the gentleman who caught me in the, in the break is I I do want to, um, to use this time though, to press into you. If you haven't been challenged in these ways, because these issues and these problems, they do exist. Right. And I don't want you to be uninformed. So if somebody hits you with them, you're like shocked and you're like, I don't know what to do. You're like, Okay, no, relax, all right? Um, there's nothing new under the sun. People have known about these things for thousands of years, um, which is why one of the reasons you're in this class, to be better equipped um, to know about them. And, and ultimately, I go back, like, why, why am I an inerrantist? I'm an errantist because I think Jesus was, um, and I follow Jesus. And if Jesus does something, then I'm, I'm with him. <laughs> I think being with Jesus is a good place to be. <clears throat> so if you're... Um, not in some area, then I'd encourage you to be with Jesus um, on on that. All right, let's talk for the next eighteen minutes ish um, or so on the clarity, necessity, and sufficiency of Scripture. This is so. This is chapter four of Grudem's book. I mean, if you if you read Grudem, we would encourage you to track along with it. Um, we're obviously going to teach um, various aspects out of it, and then also, like Nike has already done, and really both of us have, we're also going to challenge some of the things that Grudem says. Um, just because we think it's helpful um, for this to be, like I said, not a spoon-feeding f- type uh, class. We want you to think, all right? We don't want to tell you what to believe. Um, ultimately, we want to teach you, like, here's, here's how you should think. Here's what you should consider. So going, uh, going back to um, uh, Barbara's question um, toward the beginning of the class, is, is th- there's this doctrine of illumination, all right? And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse six, and read along with me. I'm reading out of the NIV 2008 update. uh, uh, I lead uh, one of the ministries I lead is the Equipped Disciple Ministry, and uh, most of the guys in there like the NIV, but they like the 84 edition. You know, so (laughs) see there, there you go. Uh, I'm talking about (laughs) that's the inerrant Word of God right there. (laughs) <laughs> I, I know, right? Dude, man, I, have you guys ever run across these like uh, 1611 Geneva Bible, like King James only uh, people? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, encourage them to come listen to this class, you know, or, or um, something like it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I seriously have digressed. First um, Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Um, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not with the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. <clears throat> and this is where I'll camp out. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, um, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Um, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." OK, so obviously when you open the text and you start reading out of the scripture, um, you are uh, you are doing uh, the work of an interpreter. OK, um, a- anytime, anytime anybody from our stage or in a Bible study or what I'm doing right now or in your community group or just you personally, when you open the Bible and start to talk to yourself in your head. Right. Um, which I think we should do that a lot. Right. Um, you should even contradict yourself in your head if, if your head is creating things in your mind that shouldn't be there, right? This is why David says in the Psalms, he's like, he's like, hey, oh, my soul, why are you so downcast within me, right? And he starts to preach to himself. We should be preaching to ourselves on a consistent basis. I'll tell a story in a second, but, but we're doing the work of an interpreter, and, and uh, in the work of the interpreter, one of the primary, and I would, I would encourage you to do this prior to opening scripture anytime, is to take a few minutes prior and pray, Right? ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the written word so that you can spiritually discern the meaning that's found in the text, right? Um, and, and, And I'll get back to my original point. It is not the text that changes you. It is the Spirit of God, right? Now, the Holy Spirit is going to use the inspired um, uh, written word that testifies about Jesus in order to bring about a transformation, which gets back to your point about the word of God is alive and active. How? Why is it alive and active? Because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is, is constantly interacting with his children. Um, and and the, this doctrine of illumination is that it's the thing that, um, again, we don't just like, uh, create words and assign meaning to them. Um, we we use words, we use language um, to describe uh, a reality that already exists. Do you understand the d- distinction there? We're not creating things; we're attempting to describe what already is. Well, what already is is the fact that you can open up Scripture and and have read a passage a hundred times right? But for that time and moment in your life, the Holy Spirit brings out, I mean, you've been reading it in black and white, and all of a sudden it's like ultra HD, um, you know, color TV, and it's in your face, and you're like, oh, that's what that means. That's how this applies to my life right now. This is, this, this is deepening my affections for Jesus. This is, this is empowering me to live um, uh, uh, the Christian life. This is This is um, uh, exposing areas of of sin in my life that I did not even know were there, right? Um, So the Holy Spirit is using Scripture as a tool to illuminate your life so that you can have the mind of Christ, right? Right? I mean, there's so much to that. I could literally teach a whole other class on how the scripture is used in the spiritual life and this doctrine of illumination that will absolutely transform you. It's, it's Romans 12, one and two. Um, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in, in view of God's mercy, um, to present yourself um, a, as, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Right? Um, b- by opening, by exposing yourself to scripture um, to allow the spirit to use it to conform you into the image of his son. If this book testifies about Christ, how powerful a tool is it that for the Holy Spirit to use it to conform you into the image of his son, right? I mean, that it's, it's a, um, um, so b- back to your point, Bar, I think you said it really well, you know, um, before, where you're like, hey, God does something when you open scripture and read it. And I'm like, yes, he does, all right? Um, and what he does ultimately is point you to Jesus, deepen your affection for Jesus, deepen your faithfulness to Jesus. Um, I mean, if y'all get sick and tired of hearing me say the word Jesus, then I'm sorry, but, you know, um, I love Jesus. <laughs> um, he is the centerpiece of, um, of my life. Secondly, um, our interpretation of the text should mirror the text, getting back to the concentric circles, right? When it comes to things that I'll fight you over, um, I'm gonna fight you over things that the, that the text will fight you over, right? Um, if the text gives space and liberty, I'm gonna give you space and liberty. If the text is totally unclear, I'm gonna be like, I have no idea, right? But I'm not gonna fight you over things that I would raise my hand and be like, I have no idea. Right? Which is why on some of these things, I'm honest with you, like, hey, yeah, that's, you know, John 7.53 to 8.11 was probably never in the Bible to begin with, but we read it like it is. And if somebody is like, oh, I'm going to be like, hey, you know, that um, that was probably a later emendation, like a, a scribal emendation. So they just added it later. Um, but I think it's a great story, right? Um, so I'm going to be honest where the text is honest. I'm going to be flexible where it's flexible. I'm going to fight you where the text would fight you over, right? Which is why, those concentric circles are so important. A lot of times people come and they'll take a a third, fourth tier issue and they treat it like it's the center. And we can't do that. Um, that's just bad theology. All right. got to speed up. Exegesis is good. Eisegesis is bad. All right. Y'all repeat with me. Exegesis is good. Eisegesis is bad. All right. Some of y'all are like, what the heck is exegesis? (laughs) What the heck is eisegesis? Um, so exegesis literally, uh, ek is the, is the, is the Greek um, preposition. It literally means to draw out of or to come from the text. So we believe that there is a, a meaning of the text. So if you're ever in a Bible study, I think I said this last month, if you're ever in a Bible study and you go around and people are like, oh, okay, let's read this. Okay, what does that mean to you, right? And that's about as substantive as you get, quit that Bible study, all right? Um, The text has meaning. There is meaning in the text. It's our job as, as responsible uh, as responsible students of the text, um, to do our best to, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit illumination and, and through, uh, uh, Bible study methods, which is our, our commercial, right? This summer we'll offer a class called keys to effective Bible study. Come to that class. (laughs) All right. Um, and, and learn how to more effectively study your Bible. So, um, Eisegesis is the the Greek preposition um, ace is into. So you're reading the meaning into the text. This is how so many people make the mistake of you're coming to the text with all kinds of baggage and that baggage leaks out onto the page, all right? That's a good way of of kind of mentally picturing what happens. And so just know that there is stuff that's gonna leak out onto the page. We're trying to minimize what you're reading into the text and we're trying to maximize drawing the meaning out of the text so that ultimately the people who do eisegesis, their God ends up looking enormously like who? Themselves, right? And that's really dangerous. So um, one more time, exegesis is good. Eisegesis is bad. All right, good. Yeah, we're all good little robots in here. All right. And then lastly, maintain humility. I love this quote um, uh, from N.T. Wright, who's, who's one of the foremost theologians um, in the world today. But he just says, I used to tell my students that at least 20% of what I was telling them was wrong, Right? But I didn't know which 20% it was. And, and I think that that's, that type of humility in coming to the text is, is absolutely right. All right, We need to be able to come and say, hey, literally, probably 20, maybe 25% of what I'm telling you right now is totally wrong. I just don't know which, which part it is. All right? when, we're, when we're in glory and we're standing in, the, you know, in, in front of the face of Christ and, and participating in, in the triune um, love of God um, fully as we were created to be, then we're going to look back and be like, dude, I totally got that wrong. Like, Nica's wrong about the rapture, you know? But, I mean, you know, nobody's, <laughs> n- nobody's going to... That's going to be like a, a little bitty thing about that, you know? <laughs> anyway... <clears throat> which by the way, I'm not going to be here the night y'all do eschatology. Um, so I'll have to teach a whole other class to correct all that. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> all right. The necessity of scripture. So, I mean, the, the number one, why is scripture necessary? Getting back to uh, some of the questions that have been asked. Well, um, because it testifies about Jesus. Um, Jesus himself affirmed scripture because it testified about him. um, It, it, it's the, it, it testifies about the salvation found in Jesus, right? Um, John 5, 31 to 47. I mean, that, that entire, uh, section of scripture, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. I'm not going to read it now for time's sake, but, but ultimately that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, Hey, um, the witnesses about me are, um, the father and, and Moses, (laughs) right? Who, I mean, Moses is used, um, generally to, to describe the writer of the old Testament, right? Um, so, so Jesus Himself is is talking about Scripture testifying about Him. Secondly, the necessity of Scripture, um, the Spirit uses it to protect, to nourish, and to grow His children. Matthew chapter four, verse four. You guys know what what's happening at the beginning of Matthew four? Yeah, the temptation, the temptation of Jesus, and and the enemy comes up to Jesus and tempts him in three different ways. How does Jesus respond every time? He quotes He quotes Scripture, right? And, and, and one of the scriptures he quotes, as he said, is written, man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Right? So it's not just there for protection. The, the written word protected Jesus in that moment. Right? The, the, the Holy Spirit used that um, as a covering for, for Jesus as he is encountering um, the enemy who would steal and kill and destroy and thereby affect all of us. Right? And, and how Jesus um, comes back as a, as a shield of protection is um, he's, he had so immersed himself in this that, that the spirit was able to use it because he had been such a student of it, right? Um, and then there's the whole fact that he's like God, you know. Um, but to protect, to nourish, and to grow his children, all right? That, again, I'm, I'm, I'm in school right now um, working on a degree toward um, uh, the subject material is, is on like spiritual formation. How is someone formed in Christ? How, is it, how, do, how are we disciples of Jesus? And I mean, it is by far and above one of the greatest tool that we can use in our relationship um, with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit um, is daily intake, consistent intake of um, Scripture. Why? Because it testifies about Jesus. Right? The Spirit uses it as a tool to conform us to the image of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> thirdly, it connects us to the human story. It shapes our worldview. I mean, that um, if we're reading scripture again, like those kind of ninja throwing stars, like there's like there's these different truth nuggets that we just kind of throw at one another. We're not doing anything but more. We're not doing anything more but than just like a a, a modern day self help type program, right? Um, the, the The entire Bible is, a, is an epic story that you fit into. And what's crazy, like Nica said, I mean, one of the reasons I hold to a really high view of all this is because um, I love it how um, the entire, uh, all of creation fits into the narrative about how God has interacted with mankind and that right now in this long timeline that we're just a speck on, right? Right? At, at this moment, God has been like, hey, right now I'm with you guys, right? And you guys are going to be about my kingdom, and when and we pass these things on to our children, and the Spirit uses that to continue to advance His kingdom, um, ultimately to where all things would be made new, right? It, it connects us to that epic story of mankind and our interaction with God. Um, we can't know those things apart from Scripture, right? Um, it's, it, yeah, it, it connects us to all of those things. Um, and then lastly, um, it is our guide and authority for faith and practice, 2 Timothy 3. You know, uh, uh, fourteen to sixteen. Verse fifteen and sixteen was that you know all Scripture is God breathed, um, and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be not just equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? If you try to 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 live the Christian life apart from encountering Jesus through the power of the Spirit in Scripture on a consistent basis, you will not grow up very fast right? And you're, frankly, you're, your growth will be totally stunted. And frankly, you'll get driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine that comes your way, right? So there, this is, I mean, we're rooted firmly in this. And I would just tell you as, as a personal testimony, I'll try to keep it short, but um, there was a time toward the end of my seminary time at Dallas Seminary um, back in 2005 where um, I, I just had a, I had a really, really difficult time. I was way too busy and I just ran myself into the ground and I got depressed, right? I was like, literally, I mean, my entire world, it felt like my entire world fell apart. And all of these emotions came in that were just like, man, um, can I believe any of this anymore? It was a crisis of faith, you know? And do you know what kept me grounded in that time? Scripture did, right? It was, it was the lighthouse in the midst of a raging storm, because I was like, I don't feel like this is true or I don't feel like that, that this is reliable. I don't, whatever. And yet I would go there and read it and be like, but that's what God said, right? So even though I feel like it's not true, I'm going to put place my faith in the fact that it is, right? Again, going back to those uh, uh, you know, sources of authority, it was very tempting for my emotion and experience to trump um, scripture uh, uh, reason and, and uh, tradition, scripture, tradition, and reason. And yet in that moment, I was like, man, what is my anchor? My anchor is the fact that even, even in the midst of like, man, I'm not sure that God loves me, um, the Scripture was screaming out at me that, that God loves me, right? And so I'm like, okay, I have a choice to make, you know? And a lot of times that's, what, that's how God sharpens our faith and deepens our faith is through going through storms like that where we're like, no, um, the compass, the anchor that the Spirit is using in my life right now is the word of God, the written word of God. And then lastly, the sufficiency of scripture. Um, So sufficient for what? So so scripture is sufficient for knowledge of the gospel, for faith and for practice, but it's not sufficient for everything. A lot of times, you know, people will be like, well, man, you know, I should be able to open the Bible and find the answer to all of life's problems. No, you can't, you know? I mean, if your problem is you, you stink at being a cook, you don't need to open the Bible. You need to go take lessons from a cook. You know, if you, you know, if you stink at something else, like the Bible's not going to help you. You need to go to school and get better at being a pilot or, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and so uh, we, we would say that um, the, the biggest thing, and I would tell you this, and I'll end with this tonight, as we talk about bibliology is um, a lot of times people will come to this and they come to scripture and they ask because they're asking the wrong question. They get the wrong answer, Right. So Aristotle said in Metaphysics a long time ago, which we only have a handful of manuscripts of this, so I mean, is it really reliable? You know. <laughs> but Aristotle said in Metaphysics, he said, those who wish to succeed must first ask the right preliminary question. As, as an interpreter of the text, as someone who's coming to the text attempting to do exegesis and not eisegesis, it is our responsibility to come to the text and first, first ask the text the question, what, what question is this text attempting to answer and then ask that question. Are you tracking with me? Um, don't come to the text and impose on it questions that it is not attempting to answer. All right? You're, you're going you're to find yourself uh, frustrated and, frankly, backed into a corner that you don't want to be in. All right? Um, and so uh, there's, a, there's a few other points, the, the nature of Revelation over time, and i not have time to go into that. Um, but just a few practical applications that I've touched on, and that NICA has as well, is I, I think as you walk away from tonight... Um, hopefully you've been challenged, but hopefully you haven't been challenged to the point where you're thinking like, because I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want you to think that, that I hold to a low view of scripture or anything like that. On the contrary, because I hold to a high Christology, I probably hold as high a view of scripture as anybody in this room. All right. As far as inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, all of those things. Right. Um, but um, so, so when you come to it, um, come to it confidently that when you do open it, that the Spirit will use the, the Scripture in a unique way, uh, apart from any other tool available to Him, to absolutely um, transform you into the, the image of His Son. Um, again, and I'll end with this, which I said I've end with this like three times, but this is the real one, um, <clears throat> is if we are reading the Bible, but we're not substantively connecting to Jesus, then we're, then we're doing the wrong thing, Okay. Where, where all of a sudden uh, the, the holy scripture, the holy written word of God has just become a book of text, right? Um, it is, you, we are supposed to read it, like, like Barbara said, um, with humility coming to the spirit and asking the spirit to use it to transform us into his image, all right? Micah, anything else?
2: I'll just pray us out of here. Father, we just thank you for your word that through it we know more about you, we know more about your son, we know more about the gift of grace, and the gift of salvation that you've given to us through your Son, and keep us and seal us for the day that comes, most likely through a rapture, uh, with your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to be with our friends tonight and to learn more about you. And so, uh, just keep us safe, and uh, allow, if any, anything Nate and I said tonight, be counter to what you would have them here, Lord, I pray they would quickly forget it. And then, God, if there's anything in here that you would stir our minds to, that you would also then stir our affections for greater worship in you through that. It's in your Son's name we ask these things. Amen.